Welcome to the Zenith Law Academy podcast, the podcast that provides content creators and other internet businesses with practical legal information and tips to help you protect and scale up your business. And now here's your host, Credence Fogo Soul. Hi, and welcome to the newest episode of Zenith Law Academy podcast. I'm your host, Credence Fogo Soul. As you may or may not know, I've been a lawyer and legal educator for 25 years, and now I'm here to help content creators and other people who have internet businesses to make sense of the law as it applies to them. This week's episode focuses on how internet content creators can enforce their copyrights in small claims. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit the website at zenithlawacademy.com and join our mailing list to receive freebies and special offers. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group for more discussion of today's topic. So let's get down to business. As internet content creators, we all know how important it is to protect our intellectual property because in the early stages of your business, and later on too, your intellectual property, meaning your content, is your business's most important asset. And sometimes, especially in the beginning, it is like your only asset. So what do you do if somebody rips off your art or your blog posts or your course content or your photographs or anything else that you might create or put out there into the world? Well, the first and best thing you can do is be proactive and protect yourself before an infringement happens by copywriting your work. Now, for more information about the reasons you need to copyright, along with practical information about how to accomplish that task, I would invite you to go back and listen to episode one. On today's episode, we're going to assume that you've already done what you need to do and registered your copyrights. Okay, now even after you register your copyright, enforcement can be difficult, especially if your business is in the early stages and maybe you don't even have a legal budget, you don't even have a lawyer yet. And if your work is ripped off when you're at the beginning stages of your business and the damages are really not very large, it might be a challenge to find a lawyer. Now, it's true that the US Copyright Act provides for attorney's fees and costs if you prevail, but that's if you prevail. And in many areas of the law, most famously in personal injury cases, it, it is common for lawyers to take cases on contingency, um, which takes that risk off your shoulders. A contingency case means that the lawyer doesn't get paid unless and until you get paid. Now, this is obviously the most attractive fee arrangement from your point of view, um, but the fact that contingency arrangements represent a substantial financial risk for both the lawyer and their firm that means that they have to screen cases really carefully and they have to take numerous factors into consideration when they're deciding whether your case is, from their perspective, a good investment of their time and resources. Uh, there are common issues that an intellectual property lawyer might consider when deciding whether they're gonna take your case, include, but they're not limited to the market value of your copyright work, your damages, um, and the profits that the infringer obtained from the infringement. Now, if you're a new business, this could be a tough sell. The numbers might not work out. Um, if your case is not particularly complex, in addition, and the potential damages are likely to be low, a judge might not be inclined to grant substantial attorney fees at the end of the case, and contingency lawyers know that. Furthermore, it could be difficult to even find a firm that considers taking copyright matters on contingency, even, even when there is the possibility of a court-ordered fee award. Uh, one of the reasons for this is that even if you, the client, the creator, the copyright holder, even if you have a strong case on the issue of infringement, the law firm is still taking a financial gamble on contingency due to the risk that the infringer's pockets are not deep enough, meaning they don't have enough money, to pay that fee award. 
So the lawyer has to consider not only your damages, but also the financial resources of the defendant and whether, if there is a fee award at the end of the case, that defendant is going to be able to pay it. And that's not even considering whether the, the, whether the defendant's assets are in an American jurisdiction in which it's going to be relatively easy to force them to pay through a judgment enforcement proceeding. And it isn't considering the risk of the defendant declaring bankruptcy immediately after losing the case, which can tie up payment for months, years, and ultimately it can result in the debt being written off entirely. Because in many cases, a copyright infringement judgment can be dischargeable in bankruptcy. So there are a lot of really legitimate factors that go into deciding um, on the part of the lawyer whether to take an infringement case on contingency. And in my experience, it's pretty rare for intellectual property lawyers to take those cases. When I was still actively practicing, the, the arrangement that was more common was for lawyers to charge their clients, usually by the hour, to prosecute the lawsuit. And then if there was an attorney fee award at the end, then the client would be refunded those fees and costs. Now, that's an arrangement that could be doable for some people, but if you're a new content creator with sort of a baby business, this arrangement could be cost prohibitive, right? Because the best case scenario, this is assuming that you win, you get a fee award, everything goes great. But the best case scenario is you're, you're getting your, month back, your money back in a year or two. Assuming there's no bankruptcy in which the debt is found dischargeable. Assuming the infringer, infringer has the money to pay. Assuming the infringer's assets are in the jurisdiction and can be levied, levied upon. And obviously assuming that you win. So this is a problem, right? Right. And Congress recognized this issue a few years ago when it passed a law called the Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act, which we call the CASE Act for short. Now, what the CASE Act did is that it established a small claims type system within the United States Copyright Office. In brief, the CASE Act created a voluntary streamlined process, which runs through the Copyright Office, in which you can prosecute infringement claims that are valued at $30,000 or less. Now, this system is fairly new. Uh, the law was passed at the end of 2020, but cases didn't begin to be heard until June of 2022. So law end of 2020, cases start being heard like a year and a half later. Um, so really we only have about, at this point, like a year of experience with the system, June of 2022 to October, 2023. So we got 15 months of experience. So let's talk a little bit about the background of the CASE Act and why it was passed. It was passed for people like you. Congress recognized that small copyright owners often have difficulty enforcing their copyrights, especially related to written and visual works, because it is so incredibly expensive and time-consuming to go through the federal courts. According to the American Intellectual Property Law Association, as long ago as 2017, so this is like six years ago, even six years ago, the average cost of pursuing a copyright infringement case in federal court was, wait for it, $278,000. And even at that point, even six years ago, even pre-pandemic and before all of you know the court closures, they created bottlenecks and are making things take longer. Even back then, copyright infringement cases often took more than a year to litigate. Now, as a potential plaintiff in a copyright case, that would be you, that's scary, right? And lawyers are fully aware of these costs and the timeline, which is why, given the uncertainty of copyright litigation and judgment enforcement, it is going to be difficult to find a contingency lawyer for a lawsuit with relatively low damages or a small number of infringements. Because if there's only a small number of infringements, then you're looking at even really limited statutory damages that might be available. So this was a problem. I mean, essentially, it was an access to justice problem. 
And so Congress began to consider this issue and how to deal with this problem uh, beginning in uh, 2006, when a congressional subcommittee instructed the Copyright Office to study potential solutions. Now, of course, the Copyright Office didn't publish its report until 2013, so seven years of studying the problem, and nothing was passed until 2020 because that's how it goes. That's how it goes when you're in the government. So end of 2020, the law is passed, signed by the president. Um, at that point, the actual small claim system had to be set up. It had to be created, and rules had to be created. And through that process, the Copyright Claims Board was established. And the Copyright Claims Board began to hear cases in the summer of 2022, as I mentioned a moment ago. Okay, so that's the background. Now let's move on to talk about practical matters. Specifically, how does the Copyright Claims Board work and how can you get the system to work for you? To begin, I wanna give you a basic description of the features of the Copyright Claims Board, which is getting sort of unwieldy to say, so we're gonna to refer to it as the CCB. So let's start with the personnel. The CCB is not a federal court. It's an arm of the Copyright Office, and it's made up of three officers who are experienced in copyright law. So as of the date of this episode, uh, which is in October 2023, the officers included one individual who has two decades of government experience in intellectual property matters, and two individuals who were previously high-level partners practicing intellectual property law at big, well-known law firms. So this is a really good feature, it's positive, it's welcome, especially compared to federal court, because in federal court, and this is actually something that separates the American legal system from a lot of other legal systems, in federal court in the United States, uh, we don't, with a few exceptions, our courts are generally courts of general jurisdiction and our judges are generalists, right? You don't have like uh, one federal court that deals with employment cases, right? And one one federal court that deals with civil rights cases. You just go to federal court. And so the judges hear every kind of case. I mean, they could hear copyright infringement in the morning and the death penalty in the afternoon. They're complete generalists. And although they're really smart and experienced, obviously, um, generalists often, generalist judges often do not have much, if any, practice experience in copyright law. So that's one difference and one advantage of the CCB over going to federal court. You're You're having your... You're having your case considered by people who are truly experts. Okay, now let's talk about who can file a claim before the CCB. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that your claim has to be worth $30,000 or less to be eligible to be heard at the CCB. This is similar to small claims court at the state level, right? You know, if you have a breach of contract case um, and you want to go to small claims court, depending on the state, if, you're con if, the, if, the, if the damages are more than $10,000, you can't go to small claims court. Um, but if your damages are 5,000, then you go to small claims court and it's easier and quicker. Um, okay, so similarly at the CCB, there's this $30,000 limit. If your case is with more, off you go to federal court. Okay, in addition to the jurisdictional limit, um, one important uh, feature that should be of interest to you is that you do not need a lawyer to file a case at the CCB. Now, I wanna give you a little bit of explanation uh, uh, about this, this feature. Even if you file your copyright case, so let's say you skip the CCB, you, you go to federal court. Now, um, even if you file your copyright case in federal court, you generally would have the right to represent yourself. However, if you registered your copyright in the name of your corporation or LLC, you cannot represent yourself because you're not the company, you're two separate entities, right? So you can't represent the company 
um, in your copyright infringement case, if that, you know, assuming that registration is in your company's name, you have to use a lawyer. So now we're back to the 278,000 and all that business. In contrast, at the CCB, you are not required to have a lawyer, even if your copyright is held in the name of your company. Because under the CCB rules, businesses can be represented by their owners or even by any authorized employee. In addition, if you, you know, know if you if you know of this rule, but you still don't really want to represent yourself, you think that you know you somebody else might do a better job, uh, the CCB provides you with resources for you to find lawyers or even supervise law students who may be able to take your case pro bono, in other words, for free. So the best thing about the CCB from a small content creator's perspective is that it provides you with options for avoiding high attorney fees. Now, this ability to represent yourself or your company is a real positive. But if you've never been in court or court type proceeding before, that's still kind of intimidating, right? Because not only do you have to be able to understand and argue the law, you're going to have to understand the rules and the procedures for trying the case. Now, in a regular court, pro se litigants, meaning people who are representing themselves, they don't get any special consideration in terms of having to comply with rules and procedures just because they aren't lawyers. Well, the rulemakers for the CCB thought about that issue. And what they did is they designed the CCB process to be streamlined and easier to understand than the federal rules of civil procedure um, so that when you're in the CCB and you are a regular person, um, you have the ability to navigate the system and get your case through it without necessarily needing a lawyer. The Copyright Alliance actually provides an incredible resource with the articles and podcasts and streaming video links that really explore the CCB process. And if you wanna take a deep dive, then I would highly recommend checking it out. Um, the link to that website is in the show notes. So go down there, click on the link, and you'll be taken to the website of the Copyright Alliance and specifically their page titled Copyright Claims Board Explained. Okay, in any event, let's chat briefly about how the process works. Now, please remember, this is only a summary. You can get the full rules and procedures from the U.S. Copyright Office, and I have also included a link to the CCB's handbook in the show notes. So here's how it works. To start your claim, you go to the CCB website at ccb.gov access a claim, also available in the show notes, where you can register for access, basically just create an account, and you file your claim. The process is really easy compared to preparing an infringement complaint to file in federal court. When you go to the CCB website, you're going to see a fillable form where you just input all of the information that the CCB wants to see. And it's, it's like really basic stuff. It's things like the names and addresses of the parties, information about the work, a description of what happened, um, and a description of how you were damaged and what relief you're asking the CCB to give you. You're also allowed at this point to attach relevant files such as your copyright registration certificate um, and things like links or screenshots or other copies of the work and the infringing material. Okay, so that's the substance of what you're going to file with the CCB. Now, to, to file your case, you are going to have to pay a filing fee, and the filing fee is $100. You only pay $40 of that filing fee when you first file your claim online. Once the CCB receives your claim, so you hit send, boop, it goes over to the CCB, a member of the CCB staff, and this is a person known as a copyright claims attorney, not one of the officers. A copyright claims attorney, basically a staff attorney, does an initial review of your claim before anything else happens. Now, the reason for this step is to make sure that your claim qualifies to be heard at the CCB. You know that it's worth less than 30,000, you have registered copyright, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially you file and then you wait. You file and you wait to hear back to find out whether your claim is approved or denied. And that means that it's approved or, or denied to be heard at the CCB, not that you have an actual decision yet. 
So the, that that staff attorney is basically looking at the amount of the claim and whether it's the right type of claim to be heard by the CCB, meaning that in your in your case that you're claiming copyright infringement. There are a few other types of copyright related claims that you can bring before the CCB, but to date we're concentrating on infringement. Okay, so the staff attorney is also going to check to make sure that your respondent, I mean, it's another term for the defendant, that your respondent is not a member of any class of people or entities who cannot be sued in the CCB, um, which includes certain libraries and archives, online service providers, foreign residents, and the government. Finally, the staff attorney is going to want to know that your copyright is actually registered because you can only file CCB infringement claims for registered copyrights or for copyrights for which you have filed an application to register. If your claim doesn't meet the requirements for whatever reason, you know, maybe you forgot to you forgot to give the registration number or, or something of that nature, you're going to get 30 days to amend the complaint so, to to amend your claim um, so that it does meet them. So you know if there's some sort of procedural uh, defect in the claim that you file, you do get a chance to fix it. You're not completely um, you're not completely out of the game. Okay. Anyway, when your claim is before the co the copyright claims attorney, you are not at the substantive stage of the process yet. This is just sort of a pre-review. Um, so hopefully what's going to happen is you file your claim, you wait, and then you're going to hear that the claim is approved. And at that point, you're going to have to serve the infringer, meaning your defendant or your respondent, with your claim. Now, it's actually not until this point, service of process, that you are going to learn, um, you know, finally, that you will ultimately find out whether you're going to be able to proceed through the CCB. Because there, one aspect of the CCB that makes it different from regular court is that it's actually voluntary for both sides. In other words, if you have a small copyright claim and you really want to go in front of a federal judge, don't know why, but let's just say you did, you absolutely have the right to file a regular, expensive lawsuit in court. You are not required to use the CCB. And just like the use of the CCB is voluntary for you, it's also voluntary for the respondent, but the onus is on them. Basically, once you've served that respondent, they have 60 days to opt out. And if they do that, then you have a choice. And your choice becomes, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it to me and my business to file the case in federal court with the expense and delay? Um, or, you know, based on what I think the damages are, you know, maybe I've moved on from that intellectual property, I'm using other things now, you know, maybe it's just not economically rational to pursue this if I have to go to federal court. And that's a decision. I mean, that's essentially a business decision. Um, you should do it with input from a lawyer if you have one, but ultimately the decision is yours to make. That said, if you decide not to pursue it and the same infringer commits more infringements of that same work later on, I suppose they might be able to argue, you know, if you go back to, if at if, if that point you, you file in federal court, um, they might theoretically argue that you somehow abandoned your copyright because you knew about their infringement previously and declined to file the lawsuit, somehow signaling your intent to surrender your rights. Or maybe they might try to argue that your failure to pursue the matter after the CCB route was cut off, meaning after they opt out, that that amounts to giving them some kind of implied license. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this issue has not come up in the federal courts yet with respect to claims that were initially filed with the CCB. Personally, I don't think that either of these defenses, especially an implied license offense, should be held to be meritorious if all you did was fail to run off to federal court the second the respondent declined to proceed to the CCB. But I just want you to alert 
you to the fact that it's a theoretical possibility. Um, so, and something to think about when you're making that decision, once the respondent has opted out about like, okay, do I go to federal court or do I just drop it and move on? Okay, enough of the scary stuff. It's October, but we're gonna limit the scary content in this episode. Let's get back to the CBC, CCB procedures. So we're gonna assume that the 60 days at this point have gone by and your respondent has not opted out. So now, as my grandpa would have said, we are cooking with gas. At that point, you receive an order from the CCB instructing you to pay the remainder of that $100 filing fee. Remember the filing fee? In other words, $60. And you need to do that within 14 days. So once you've done that, then the process is really underway. Okay, so the actual procedures involved uh, when you're pursuing a matter before the CCB, those procedures are designed to be faster than if you were to go to court. For example, discovery, the process of gathering evidence from the other side, is much more limited before the CCB than it is in the federal court. Um, in addition, there's no motion practice in the CCB. For example, let me just explain what I mean here. If you were to file a copyright infringement claim in federal court, it would be really common for the defendant, first thing the defendant does out of the gate is the defendant files a motion to dismiss, and then you have to prepare and file and serve an opposition and then argue the matter at a hearing and then get the judge's decision about whether your case is going to be heard or thrown out, and that part alone can take months. That kind of drama is not an option at the CCB. Instead, once you've filed and you've served and the, the fees are paid and the defendant hasn't opted out, you go right into what the CCB refers to as, quote, the active phase, unquote, of the matter. At that point, the CCB issues a scheduling order, which gives both sides deadlines for the various things they have to do. Now, the first thing that happens once you get the scheduling order is the respondent is going to file and serve a response to your claim in which they're going to tell their side of the story. And also, if they have any counterclaims against you, they're going to make those counterclaims at that point. That's, that's their opportunity to do that. Once that happens, uh, you're going to have a conference, a, a video conference with a copyright claims officer. And this is not the staff attorney we talked about. This is actually one of the one of the three officers. You will have a conference with one of those officers to discuss the case. Next, you and the respondent are going to exchange information and documents that are relevant to the case. In other words, evidence. You only have a limited period of time to do that, and it's going to be set out in the scheduling order. And that period is called the discovery period. Once that period is over, once you've exchanged all of your information, then you're going to have another video conference with a copyright claims officer in which the officer and both sides are going to discuss how the case will be presented along with whether there's any possibility of settling. Okay, so once we've gotten through that, we're getting close to the end of the, of the process. So once you have uh, all the evidence has been exchanged and, and you've had your, your meetings with the officer, you and the other side, both of you, uh, each of you have to file and serve what's called a written position statement. Now, this is basically a short brief in which you make your case. It can include legal arguments. I mean, you obviously uh, set forth a statement of the facts, legal arguments, witness statements, and documentary evidence. And at that point, you may be done. At that point, the ball is actually in the CCB's court. And what happens next is that the CCB officers review both position statements, yours and the respondent's, and at that point, one of two things can happen. One, the CCB officers could choose to decide the case, quote, on the papers, unquote, meaning that they're going to make their decision based completely on the written materials that each side submitted. Alternatively, second, if it appears that there are issues that cannot be resolved just by looking at the position statements, 
then you're going to hear back from the officers this from the CCB, and they're going to inform you that they are going to convene a hearing at which you will present your case and be questioned by the officers. And then at that point, you'll get a decision. Now, although the CCB is in Washington, D.C., one important feature that makes it economically attractive to small claim litigants is that you don't have to go there for the hearing. Just like with the, the, the pre-hearing conferences, the hearings are virtual. Everything's virtual in the CCB. So here's the point that we're at. Either you have a hearing or you don't. Um, and then at some later point, you receive a determination from the CCB, uh, which is a fancy way of saying their decision. Did the other side infringe or didn't they? And how much are you entitled to? That's that's what you want to see. Um, so that's how the streamlined process works. Now, if you take a look at the CCB's handbook, it provides additional rules and procedures for dealing with unexpected issues. Uh, for example, what happens if you need to request an additional conference? Or what happens if you need to reschedule a date? All the information about how to handle those situations is in that handbook. Um, and that's where you'll find that information. And again, it's linked in the show notes. Okay. So now you have a decision. You won. You won, right? We're going to assume that you won. We have a happy ending. Yay! Not so fast. Not so fast. There are a few final issues that we need to consider. Specifically, one, what is the, CICB, what is the CCB authorized to give you? Two, what if the defendant wants to fight the decision? And three, what if the defendant doesn't necessarily fight the decision, but simply ignores or disobeys it by, for example, not paying? Okay, we're going to start with the happy part. Happy part first, your possible remedies. And they're actually pretty simple. The CCB can order that the defendant pay you a maximum of $30,000 in damages. Now, the actual amount, whether it's $30,000 or something less, um, is determined by a choice that you make or whether you opt to receive your actual damages or your statutory damages. This is actually just a math problem. In the CCB, statutory damages are limited to $15,000 per infringement. So, example, it's, it's example time. If the defendant only infringed once and your actual damages, meaning your monetary loss together with the infringer's profits are $25,000, then you'll choose your actual damages because if you chose statutory damages, you're only going to get a maximum of 15. Whereas if you choose your actual damages, you'll get the full 25. To give another example, if the defendant infringed twice, but in this situation, your actual damages together with the infringer's profits are only $5,000, then you're going to opt for the statutory damages because statutory damages give you a set amount of damages per infringement. And because the CCB will give you up to 15,000 per individual infringement, in this example that we're talking about right now, where you have two infringements, although with low actual damages, you could still receive a statutory damages award that is as high as the $30,000 limit. In addition, if the infringer agrees to stop infringing, the CCB can include in its determination an order that the, that the infringer stop infringing. One more detail. If you do decide to go with an attorney, if you, if you have decided, you know, I don't want to pursue this myself, I'm going to use a lawyer. So if you use a lawyer and the CCB finds that the other side engaged in misconduct during the CCB proceeding, this is things like not turning over evidence, stuff like that, uh, you can request attorney's fees and costs, but only up to $5,000. If you don't use an attorney um, and you're in this situation where the other side has committed misconduct during the proceeding, you can still ask for your costs. For example, things like your filing fees and the cost of serving the respondent uh, up to a maximum of 
So there you have it. Your maximum remedy when you go to the CCB is $35,000. 30,000 in maximum damages, 5,000 maximum attorney's fees and costs, along with potentially in some situations in order that the other side stop infringing. Okay, great. But what if you get this great award and the defendant says, you know, that's wrong. This is an injustice. I totally disagree. Um, Well, there's an appeal process in which either side can request that the CCB reconsider. And then if they lose at the reconsideration phase before the CCB, then they can ask the Registrar of Copyrights to reconsider. And if they still lose, then they can take their challenge, their appeal to a regular federal trial court and potentially on to the federal appellate courts, places like the Ninth Circuit. So that is your first risk if you do prevail, that you're going to stay tied up in the proceedings for a very long time while you go through various levels of reconsideration and appeal. Okay. Now, the final issue you're going to have to worry about after the proceeding or the appeals, assuming that, you know, nothing's been vacated, you still have an award in your favor, is what happens, oh, and, and this is this issue also comes up, it's not just after reconsideration or appeals, it's, it's also if you just have a CCB uh, determination and there is no... The, and there is no appeal. So at some point that re, that uh, that determination becomes final. So the final issue you're going to have to worry about after you have a final determination, whether it's just from the CCB or whether you've gone through these uh, reconsiderations and appeals, uh, what if you still have this award in your favor, but the defendant just doesn't pay? What happens? What now? Well, I have some bad news for you. The CCB actually has no ability to enforce its decisions by ordering, for example, that the respondent's bank account be levied and the proceeds turned over to you or your company. For that kind of order, you're going to have to go to federal court. So back we go to federal court, either in Washington, D.C., or in any other federal trial court that has personal jurisdiction over the defendant, which usually means the court district where the defendant is located. So if the defendant is in, say, San Francisco, Northern District of California, for example. So you go to the federal trial court, you take your CCB determination that says, you know, you get your $30,000. So you take that to the federal court and you simply ask the federal judge to, quote, confirm, unquote, the relief that the CCB said you were entitled to. As long as the CCB determination wasn't vacated during the reconsideration and appeal processes, the court is going to grant your request, by which it means that at this point, the federal court is going to enter an actual federal court judgment, an enforceable federal court judgment against the defendant. In addition, it's going to give you a little present. It will add, it's going to add your expenses, this time including attorney fees, that you had to spend in order to get that federal court order because the defendant refused to pay based on the CCB determination. So now the respondent owes you more than it did um, when all you had was a CCB determination. Okay, but still... Let's be realistic. All you have is a piece of paper. Like you you had a piece of paper that said CCB determination, and now you have a piece of paper that says federal court order. Now, the, the process of federal judgment enforcement, it can be really complex, and it's certainly way too complex to describe in the few minutes that we've left. So suffice it to say that once you have your federal court judgment, then you get to go back to court again to enforce your judgment. Um, and what you're going to do is you're going to obtain a writ of execution, which will direct the U.S. Marshal to enforce and satisfy that judgment by seizing enough of the respondent's assets, usually by levying their bank account, to pay you. And that's it. 
So even if you go through the small claims copyright process, you can still see that you're going to have a lot of work to do, right? Uh, but even so, taking your small copyright claim through the federal court from the beginning is a much longer, more complex, and more expensive process, which is why it's so important for internet content creators like you, especially people who are fairly early in their journey, to know about the CCB and how to use it. Um, because as I said at the beginning of this episode and in probably all of the previous episodes, as a content creator, your intellectual property is your primary business asset. And the availability of the CCB process gives you a much more accessible method of protecting that asset than was the case in the past. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn about it. I want you to love it. And although I hope you never have to, I want you to be prepared to use it. Okay. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode on enforcing your copyright in small claims. If you like what you've heard today, head on over to zenithlockademy.com and subscribe so that you are the first to know when new episodes, blog posts, and special offers drop. In addition, Zenith Law Academy is currently offering a short course titled How to Hire a Lawyer Without Getting Screwed, which provides you with tips and tricks for hiring a lawyer if that's what you need. The course offers more than three hours of instruction on how to hire a lawyer, along with checklists, interview scripts, and a sample engagement agreement, all of which I think are helpful and I hope that you will agree. Um, we also have a full-length course called Contracts for Creators, which includes information about, among other things, licensing contracts, and that course is going to be available in the near future. We're going to follow that course up in, in the medium future by a course called Copyright for Creators, and that is going to be a full-length course that will teach you the basics of copyright law. Finally, Zenith Law Academy offers legal business planning coaching so that you can get your business off on the right track. For more information on all of these offers, again, go to zenithlawacademy.com. In addition, if you've liked what you've heard today, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at, at @zenithlawacademy. Uh, don't forget to join our Facebook group, which is also called Zenith Law Academy, and it's free. And finally, please don't forget that this podcast provides legal education and knowledge and opinions, not legal advice. Not, represent, not representation. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. So I just want you to keep that in mind. To keep up to date on the legal issues that will increase your business savvy and your business's value, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform so that you never miss an episode. Okay, see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Zenith Law Academy podcast. Please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to receive notifications every time a new podcast is posted. Please note that the information provided on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not create an attorney-client relationship. For more information, blog posts, or to contact the show, please visit www.zenithlawacademy.com.